And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at two episodes of the original Ultraman featuring the monsters Skydon and Seibatsu, two very unusual episodes of Ultraman. And we've got a bit of an unusual one today. We are jumping back over to the Gamera series. And in fact, we are hitting the final Gamera film that has been released to date. We are taking a look at Gamera the Brave. And uh, very excited to talk about, about this film. But we do have some news to cover, so we're going to get right into that first. First up, in MonsterVerse news, Apple TV's MonsterVerse series has been given its first look. The title is Monarch Legacy of Monsters, and the series stars the legendary Kurt Russell, along with his son Wyatt Russell, playing the same character in two different eras. The official description from Apple states, Following the thunderous battle between Godzilla and the Titans that leveled San Francisco and the shocking revelation that monsters are real, Monarch, Legacy of Monsters, tracks two siblings following in their father's footsteps to uncover their family's connection to the secretive organization known as Monarch. Clues lead them into the world of monsters and ultimately down the rabbit hole to Army Officer Lee Shaw, played by Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell, taking place in the 1950s and half a century later, where Monarch is threatened by what Shaw knows. The dramatic saga spanning three generations reveals buried secrets and the and the ways that epic earth-shattering events can reverberate through our lives. Sounds really, really epic. I think that's the right word for it. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, now, no release date's been revealed other than simply coming soon. But Apple did reveal that the series will be 10 episodes long. Looks like I will finally need to bite the bullet on Apple TV for this one. Uh, lots more on this as it develops. In other MonsterVerse news, Godzilla x Kong The New Empire has had its release date moved. Originally announced for March 15th, 2024, the next cinematic chapter in the MonsterVerse saga will now drop on April 12th, 2024. That March 15th date now belongs to Dune Part 2 instead. Now, from what I'm reading, all these changes are in reaction to the, as of this recording, still ongoing writer's strike in Hollywood, uh, and again, as of this recording, shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. So take all of this as you will. Uh, speaking very narrowly, because I'm not going to get into the strike or any of that, but very narrowly, you will recall, I personally was happy with the March release date as Godzilla vs. Kong came out in March and did well. So I was on board with the sequel hitting at the same time. Now, I am sure that these dates will shake up more before everything is all said and done. So... And if any further changes develop, uh, we will let you know about that. I guess I'm going to have to watch Dune Part 1 at some point with Dune Part 2 coming out, but that is uh, unrelated to our topic. In Godzilla Minus One news, both AMC and Regal have officially announced that they will be screening the 30th Toho Godzilla film on December 1st. 
Smaller chain Harkins will also be carrying the screening if you have one of those nearby. This is good news. As more theater chains would carry the film, the more chances North American Godzilla fans will have to see The King of the Monsters on the big screen. Definitely expect more news on this film as we roll towards its release this fall. And uh, very excited to get to see another Japanese Godzilla film in the theater. In Amerigoji news, Godzilla 1998 is getting a new 4K steelbook for its 25th anniversary from Sony. This is a 4K and Blu-ray double pack. Appears to be a repack of the previous 4K release, including all of the previous special features. Now, if you don't have this film on Blu-ray and you still want it, this looks like a great way to go. Although, if you folks listened to episode 118, I think, personally, I'm going to stick with my DVD and VHS. Uh, Godzilla 98 Steelbook will release on October 10th. In video game news, the DLC for 13AM Games and WayForward's Dawn of the Monsters has been released. The DLC includes the new character Meteor Temujin, a Super Sentai or Power Ranger-style Gatai Robo, plus a new arcade mode, which emulates a classic arcade-style beat-em-up, naturally. I am very excited about this DLC, eager to try it out, uh, both the new character and the new mode, for sure. Now, for more information on Dawn of the Monsters, please go check out episode 115, where I gave my full thoughts on the game. And as I said, this DLC is available right now, so whatever uh, service you use, for me, that would be the Nintendo Store on the Switch. It's out there. I think it costs uh, $7.99 on the Switch, so probably comparable on the other uh, platforms as well. So if you enjoyed Dawn of the Monsters, please go check that out. In obscure movie news, and I know we talk mostly obscure, but this is like really obscure. The Whale God is available to order on SRSCinema.com. Now, you'll recall that The Whale God was released by Dai in 1962 and never released to the West. It involves a young man who is obsessed with taking his revenge against a giant whale, which passes by his fishing village once a year after his grandfather, father, and brother have all died in its pursuit. Now, like many SRS releases, the Whale God is available in either Blu-ray or VHS format. It's expected to ship between late November to December 2023, according to the website. Now, SRS has shown a dedication so far to these unusual or long-thought lost movies. and I'm glad to see them getting releases, even from an extremely indie, extremely boutique label. I've seen some criticism of SRS online. Why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? And, and I get that. I do understand that. If we're going to get a film, we want the best presentation, right? But what I will say, in the, in the interest of, of fairness and just speaking personally, I would rather get, you know, maybe a lesser presentation, but actually get to see some of these films that we've never had an opportunity to see. You know, uh, Monster Yang Magwai is the one that comes to mind. That when that, that one just floored me. And The Whale God's another one. Looking forward to this. Um, now, I will say this. No news on the other new tokusatsu release, which SRS Cinema uh, announced, which was Great Yokai War Guardians. But more on that once I hear something more. And finally, in comic book and Kickstarter campaign news, the third Kaiju and Cowboys Kickstarter campaign has launched. I've backed the two previous campaigns, so this one's a no-brainer for me. The description from the campaign goes, There was quite the revelation at the end of issue two concerning the hunter and his robot companions, and while they may be warriors capable of taking on some of the biggest and meanest creatures ever seen, it turns out that this alien planet has a few surprises even the hunter can't handle. Issue 3 is a mad dash for survival as the hunter rushes to escape the biggest, nastiest, and most dangerous kaiju yet. Uh, sounds like fun to me. Now, once this series is done, I believe it's going to four issues, I am looking forward to talking about this rather unusual indie comic here on the show. It's, um, 
from the title, it's it's not what you think. It's it's a little it it because there's there's robots in addition. They're like robot cowboys, so it's like a frontier robots fighting monsters. It's it's a lot of fun. It's very unique, and I like I said, once it's finished, we'll definitely cover it here on the show. All right, that's all I've got. If you've got any news that you would like to pass on, you can email me, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com, or you can get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter or on the YouTube or on the Two True Freaks Discord. Just uh, pass it along, and I will give you credit here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into Gamera the Brave right here on Earth Destruction Directive. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord. Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out Dorkness to Light, .blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or darknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Darkness to Light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gamera the Brave, whose Japanese title is, uh, I'm going to try, Chisaki Yushatachi Gamera, literally the Little Braves Gamera, was released to Japanese theaters by Shochichu on April 29th, 2006. The film made it over to the U.S. thanks to Media Blasters, who released it in um, to DVD in the U.S. in 2008 as part of its Tokyo Shock label. Uh, our special effects are by... Iseo Kaniko. Now, now, there is an Iseo Kaniko on IMDb, although they are not actually linked to Gamera the Brave. Uh, that said, I'm going to assume this is the correct individual. Kaniko is experienced as both a director and assistant director, including being credited as assistant director on Godzilla vs. Biolanti. This appears to be his first credit for uh, actually doing special effects. Our writer is Yukari Tatsui, primarily a TV writer with multiple credits from 1997 all the way up through uh, last year. Now, this is the only genre credit I can find, as most of the shows seem to be of the more romantic genre, including titles such as Modern Love Tokyo and Strawberry Night. Our director is Ruara Tasaki, a genre TV veteran. Uh, Tasaki has directed dozens of tokusatsu episodes, starting in Oranja in 1995, sticking with the Super Sentai up through Ginga Man in 1999. Uh, he then shifts gears over to Kamen Rider, no pun intended, and has stayed on that series right through this year's Kamen Rider Geats. He's also directed some episodes of Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon, as well as jumping back over to Super Sentai to work on Dawn Brothers in 2022. 
it doesn't look like Tasuki is going to stop directing Tokusatsu anytime soon from these credits. So, uh, Godspeed to him. He's out there uh, working, you know, and he's been doing it for a long time. Now, our producers are Yoichi Arashigage and Hirohisa Mukuju, both of whom have several credits across various genres to their name. Uh, so it doesn't look like they just do, do genre work. Now, what stood out me for Arashige was the horror offerings One Missed Call and One Missed Call 2. Now, if you're not familiar with those, those are generally accepted to be Toho's entries in the 2000s J-horror boom coming in the wake of uh, Rinyu and Cairo and the, you know better known over here is like The Ring and Pulse and some of those films. Well, for Makuju, I noticed that uh, they worked on a Ricky Dozan biopic, Ricky Dozan, the legendary uh, pro wrestler in Japan, and Death Note L Changed the World, a live-action Death Note film focusing on the character L. So those, uh, those look pretty interesting. Now, our synopsis for the film is adapted from Wikizilla and goes a little something like this. In 1973, Gamera self-destructed to kill a flock of Gauss which were attacking the rural city of Shima in Mie Prefecture. One of the survivors was a little boy, Kosuke. 33 years later, Kosuke has grown up and owns a small restaurant in Shima, which has recovered from the extensive damage caused by the battle over the ensuing three decades. Kosuke's son Toru's mother has recently died in a car crash, and this is his first summer without her. When playing on the beach with his friends, he sees a strange red glow emanating from a nearby rock formation. Toru decides to investigate. He finds an egg lying on top of a strange red rock with patterns carved into it. When he picks up the egg, a baby turtle hatches. Toru names him Toto, which is what his mother used to call him. Toru takes Toto home but keeps him a secret from his father, who does not allow pets in the house due to it sharing a space with the restaurant. The only people he tells are his friends Masaru and Katsua, and his next-door neighbor, a girl named Mia, who is slightly older than Toru, and looks after him. Toto soon reveals himself to be no ordinary turtle, as he flies and shoots fireballs from his mouth. Mai begins to suspect that Toto is actually a descendant of Gamera, and she tries to convince Toru that keeping him is not a good idea. Toru tries not to believe her, reasoning that Toto can't be a Gamera, otherwise he'd be 200 feet tall. Toru can't bear the thought that Toto might be a kaiju. But soon, Toto starts to grow and quickly becomes the size of an adult turtle. Too large to hide, Toru and his friends move Toto to an abandoned shack on the beach to keep him. Unfortunately, one day Toru comes back to check on Toto and realizing he is gone, is devastated. Meanwhile, off the coast of Aisashima, many bizarre shipping disasters have been occurring. No one knows what is happening or what is causing the disasters. As Toru is sulking over the loss of Toto with his friends, typhoon sirens begin blaring. Heavy stomping is heard, and soon the dinosaur-like monster Zetas appears. Zetas eats several people trying to run away. Out of nowhere, Toto appears and is much larger. Sporting tusks, Toto is ready for battle. Toto gets pummeled in his first battle, falling victim to Zetas' long, piercing tongue. Toto is able to defeat Zetas, however, using his fireball attack, driving the monster back to the sea. The government shortly arrives afterward to capture and investigate Toto. In order to combat this new menace, they hook Toto up to a machine which feeds him a liquid version of the strange red pearls which appeared after the death of the original Gamera, which scientists theorize give Gameras their power, and this is the same material as the stone on which Toru found Toto's egg. Mai, meanwhile, needs to have an operation on her heart, and Toru gives her the stone as a good luck charm. The surgery is taking place in Nagoya, which is the same city where Toto is being studied. 
Zetas attacks again, smashing the building in which Toto is being held. A revitalized Toto flies out to battle him. Zetas uses his agility and long kicking legs to his advantage to put Toto uh, at a disadvantage. Toru reasons that Toto needs the stone his egg rested on if he is to truly become a Gamera. Toru, Masaru, and Katsuya set off for Nagoya by train, but the hospital has been evacuated by the time they arrive. Mai, still recovering from her surgery in a makeshift hospital, also knows of the stone's power and tries to take it to Gamera. She is stopped by her parents, nurses, and doctors, but a young girl takes the stone from her and heads into the city. The girl passes the stone off to another child, and like a human chain, all these children create a courier service, always repeating the words, for Toto. The stone eventually gets to Toru, who runs into the evacuated Sevi to give it to Toto. Kosuke catches up to him and tries to stop Toru out of fear that he will be killed if Toto self-destructs like Gamera did in 1973. Kosuke is subsequently moved by his son's love and devotion to Toto, and the two continue onward together. They enter a building where Zetas has lodged Toto, but only Toru is able to make it to the top floor due to the debris in the stairwell. Toru talks to Toto, who seems to recognize his human friend, and then throws the stone into Toto's mouth. Toto breaks out of the building, now a fully-fledged Gamera. Toto flies towards Zetas and tackles him, knocking him off the building. Toto tears out Zetas' deadly tongue and charges up like he is going to self-destruct. As Toru cries for him not to do it, Toto instead launches an incredibly powerful fireball called the Toto Impact, blasting Zetas to pieces. The government moves in and surrounds Toto to recapture him, but Toru, Masaru, Katsuya, and all of the other children form a human wall to block them. As Toto flies into the sky, spinning like a UFO, Toru looks up and says, Sayonara, Gamera. Gamera the Brave is a film which is both on point and unusual for the series at the same time. Let's discuss that here in the notes. Now, coming off the trilogy of films from Shusuke Kaneko, new Gamera owners Katakawa decided to go in a different direction. Rather than continuing the gritty, almost grim sort of realism in Kaneko's films, director Tazuki instead looked back to the Showa era for inspiration, which makes sense given his extensive Super Sentai and Kamen Rider experience, both of those shows having a younger target audience in Kaneko's films. The Showa influence is very clear in this film, with Gamera's special connection to children, Although, to be fair, Kaneko paid homage to this as well, along with Gamera being a straight-up hero from the start. Having a child-centric cast also harkens back to the Showa series, although there are no Western kids to pal around like Toru like we got several times in the 60s and 70s. This conscious tonal shift from the previous trilogy has its good and bad points. Personally, I like the change of pace. As much as I enjoy the Heisei trilogy, which can be heard on episodes 68, 96, and 109 respectively, to me, those Showa films are foundational to Gamera. Even though my favorite Gamera film does not have any kids in it, Gamera vs. Berrigan from way back in episode 15, I surely have a soft spot and a lot of affection for those kid matinee monster mash adventures. Gamera the Brave taps into that same sort of vibe, appropriate as the film was intended as Gamera's 40th anniversary, although it was delayed to the following year during production. On the negative side, though, it does seem like something of a step backwards given the critical success of the previous trilogy. At the time of their release, there was a lot of positive buzz that Gamera was not just for kids anymore, while the Brave dips back into that well. But again, speaking for myself, I think Katakawa was on the right track as Gamera's devotion to humanity, what I refer to as his lawful good alignment, if you like those sorts of games, so it makes him a unique and special Daikaiju character, 
differentiates him from the many shades of gray character of Godzilla that Toho has rightfully or on you know rightfully in my mind embraced over the years. The human story is very evocative of the Showa Gamera films in that our main characters are children and they get into scrapes away from their parents. Within that framework, the Brave modernizes the story to not only fit this modern setting, but also to make the film more what I would call all ages instead of kid vid. The relationship between Toru and Mai, that of the precocious younger, quote, brother, and the doting older, quote, sister, plays well for both younger and <coughs> older viewers, such as myself, and the kid gang of Toru, Masaru, and Katsuya similarly works well in both contexts. The difference between the Showa films and the Brave comes in the relationships between the kids and their parents. Toru and Kosuke's relationship, clearly defined for most of the running length by the absence of Toru's mother, is a more mature and realistic look at a father-son relationship than we have ever seen previously in this series. As both a parent and a child, I can see both sides of the coin here, which honestly I was not expecting from a Gamera film. The same goes with Mai and her parents despite their limited screen time. These familial relationships mirror Toyu's devotion to Toto as he behaves with his little and not-so-little turtle as he was modeled to behave by his late mother. This relationship leads to my favorite bit of the film, Toru's feeling that Toto cannot be Gamera because monsters like Gamera end up always fighting and dying is both indicative of the active, hopeful love which Toru learned from his mother, but also plays on the audience's now I'm talking about both kids and adults alike in the audience, their sense of genre awareness. Giant monsters do fight and suffer and often die, and it's no surprise that Toru does not want that for Toto. Who would? The Brave is a straightforward story, not as involved in mythology or hard-boiled drama as the Kaneko films, but it's executed with a lot of heart and creates a memorable film experience in its own right. Visually, the film is definitely a bit softer than the hard-edged and hard-boiled films which immediately preceded it. It's not a surprise given the target audience, and it does also differentiate the Brave further from those films. While the previous Heisei Gamera made waves among the fandom, both casual and hardcore, Toto's big babyface look is cuter than Gamera has ever looked, even as a kid's hero monster. Toto's design is plainly Gamera, even if that is a sort of cutesy take on Gamera. Toto initially looks out of his depth, but his determination to his task of defending humanity does put him over as a legit hero. The other Gamera, Advent Gamera, who we see briefly in the prologue, is more in line with the other Heisei Gamera suits, albeit with a rounder, more turtley sort of head. And given that he's fighting a flock of Gauss, that's kind of on point as a, you know, Heisei-era scene. The Gauss similarly evoke the Heisei Gauss, although, frankly, we only see them for a short amount of time, so we don't get a real great look at them. Of course, if you're going to bring somebody back, you got to bring back Gauss, right? That's just, that's just the way it goes. Zetus fairly shouts evil monster with his big theropod head and ugly grimace of a face, plus his long tail and spines. His overall design has, from the moment I first saw him, made me think that this was Katakawa giving Gamera a Godzilla-like opponent and an upright reptile with a tail and spines that lives in the water. This is somewhat confirmed in the book Heisei Gamera Perfection which states that Zetas was intended to look and move like a Toho Kaiju rather than a Dai monster. Of course, that statement does come with the caveat that we have another reptilian monster who fights Gamera with a very long tongue weapon, just like Berrigan did way back in 1967. But let's not worry about that. Zetas's gait is the most odd aspect of him to my eyes. 
Like I said before, he is modeled on and intended to be like a Toho monster. But here's the rub. He's more like a Showa Toho monster in that he demonstrates quite a lot of humanoid movements despite being a reptile. The best example of this is when he climbs the bridge during his and Toto's first encounter. There's nothing wrong with the monster exhibiting humanoid traits. It does come off as a bit of surprise in the Heisei era, however. I like Zetus as an enemy for Gamera, even if he is not as outlandish as some of the others. I do hope we will get to see him again in some capacity going forward. The special effects here, like pretty much everything else in the film, has a different flavor than the other Heisei films, which reads given the different personnel. With Tasuki's background in Tokusatsu TV, it's not surprising that many of the effect sequences are blocked out somewhat like a Toku TV series, and would not look out of place on Ultraman or the Super Sentai. This is not damning them with faint praise, but rather giving an idea of the overall cohesion and palette of these shots. The monsters and city smashing are well executed, as one would expect, but the most unique effect to me comes in the form of the use of 13 live African-spurred tortoises who portray the young Toto. While certain scenes use CGI to enhance Toto's responses to his surroundings, such as opening his eyes or blinking or you know opening his mouth in shock, the performance from these little guys definitely helps sell Toto to the audience. He's, they're believable as a, he's believable as a turtle because it's a real turtle that's in Toto's hand. It also leads directly to a great gag. When baby Toto is wandering around Kosuke's kitchen, a large knife falls towards him, sticking into the floor. This causes the turtle to spurt out a little fireball in an angry response, with the blade clearly resembling a certain knife-headed alien guard dog monster. Hmm, who could we be talking about? As I stated earlier, The Brave was not a success at the box office, earning only 410 million yen, just shy of 2 million dollars. And what this means is that The Brave was also less successful than all of the other Heisei films. And each of those films actually underperformed expectations, which I think is, is a point that's lost sometimes during discussion. Now, given that result, it's not too hard to understand why there still has not been a follow-up film from Katakawa, with the upcoming Gamera Rebirth anime soon rectifying that situation. Hard to believe that this is, in fact, the, the last official Gamera movie or show we've gotten until Rebirth. You know, which is, it's, it's almost, it's what, let's see, this was 2006, so that'd be four, what, 17 years? Hard to believe. Now, Rebirth, from the information we have seen from the trailers and the other official releases, also seems to be paying homage to, or at least leaning into the Showa era, with the five monsters all being Showa era creations, and a seeming kid gang as our protagonist. Now, as of this recording, we will not have to wait long to see how this new iteration plays out. I, for one, am very curious how Rebirth is going to play out. Very excited for that, but that's for another episode. Now, overall, Gamera the Brave is a successful callback to a different era in Daikaiju film, taking the Showa-era motif of Gamera being not only the guardian of humanity, but the friend to all children. Could have been a ridiculous mess, but Tasuki and company pull it off and make it work and work well. We get a fierce new enemy, a new take on Gamera, which is familiar and unique at the same time. It's a different from the other Heisei films, true, grant you that, but it stands out as a novel and entertaining film that will play well to all members of the audience. In short, no, Gamera the Brave is not as genre-impacting as the trilogy, but it remains a singular and superlative effort well worth the time to check out. Now, if you would like to check out <laughs> Gamera the Brave, you do have a couple of options. 
The Aero Video Complete Gamera Box is out of print. Uh, you can find it second um, you know, on eBay or other sources like that. I've seen it go for some ridiculous prices. So if you want to go that route, um, my advice is just be patient. Take your time with it and wait wait for a good price. Don't just, you know, because I've seen some exorbitant prices for that. But that's, I'll, I'll leave that to, to, to you, the listener. Um that said, the Heisei Collection box is still available on Amazon with all four Heisei films together. You can also pick up the film itself on either DVD or Blu-ray. Although, if I'm being honest, for the cost of those discs, it's probably more cost-effective uh, to get that box set if you have any interest in the other Heisei films, just from a dollars and cents standpoint. If you're into streaming, Gamma the Brave is available to stream on Amazon Prime, along with all the other films in the Gamma series. So, if you've got Amazon Prime, you can check it out. I now throw it to you, the listeners. What did you think of Gamera the Brave? Do you like it being a show, a throwback? Do you think it's a step in the wrong direction after the previous Heisei films? What do you think about Zetus? What do you think about Toto? Hit me up. Let's talk about it. I'd love to discuss this here on the show. Directive at yahoo.com or on Facebook or Twitter or you know uh, YouTube, Discord, whatever. Love to hear about it. Uh, I, uh, so if you got any thoughts on Gamera the Brave, please send them to me and we can talk about them. All right, folks. That's all I've got on Gamera the Brave. I'm going to take a quick break. And we're going to come back to close out the show and do listener feedback right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part souls, they came to be known as the fan holes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. I hold in my hand some listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook on Twitter, on YouTube, or the Two True Freaks Discord. So check out the outro to the show in the show notes for all the ways to get in touch. Our email this time comes from my good friend, Mr. Adam Tebow. And Adam writes in saying, Godzilla 98 turns 25? Hey, Luke. I wanted to write in with my experience with Godzilla 98, which I was very disturbed to find out is 25 years old. Somehow, that seems like it should be illegal Yes, sir, from your lips to the uh, state house's ears, man, because no, I, re- I am in, I choose to disbelieve, choose to disbelieve that Godzilla 98 is 25, because if that's 25, how old does that make me? And these are the existential questions that uh, we don't, I don't want to answer. I really don't. I just want to talk about monsters. <laughs> Adam continues, I was a young lad. My friend Adam is a lad. He's a wee lad, a wee lad of 15 on a school band trip to New York City during the run-up to the release of this movie. I saw ads everywhere for it, including the famous ones that said Godzilla is twice as tall as this sign and Godzilla is twice as long as this bus, etc. I was super hyped to see the movie and eagerly awaited the release day. I saw it with my family and was underwhelmed. 
The monster was okay at best, and the cast and writing were all over the place. I really, really wanted to love it, but I didn't. I did, however, really enjoy the animated series which followed, which was much better than the movie itself. I agree 100% with all of that. Um, I was, again, like I talked about in the episode, I was living in New York at the time, so not in the city. But, you know, anytime we'd go anywhere near the city, you'd see all those giant advertising. They were all over the place. It was all over the papers and stuff. Um, and yeah, I was in the same way. Saw it with my family, really was hyped for it, really wanted to like it. And it's like, oh, oh gosh, this, this film is, it's different. It's different. And yeah, the animated series is great. Um, I'm trying to figure out how, what format to cover that on the show. I'm not, I don't think I've made a decision yet, so I'm not going to say anything, but I do intend to, to get to Godzilla, the series. Cause that, that show was a lot of fun. I, we've talked about Godzilla, the series a little bit. Cause I did the first of the two game boy color video games. I got to do the second one, uh, Godzilla Monster Wars at some point. Um, but yeah, the Godzilla the series was was fantastic. And it was always like, really? But, you know, Godzilla the series also kind of took the film and kind of streamlined some of the elements that didn't work and kind of leaned into being more of just a monster mash, which I, I works well for an animated series. Had a great look, too. So that uh, that always helps. Adam continues, also... Your comment about finding Godzilla on UMD reminded me of my own obscure media related to that movie. I own a copy of the Godzilla 98 soundtrack on minidisc because of course he does. If you know my friend Adam and obscure outdated technology, of course he does. I was tooling around on eBay one day and saw the listing and instantly knew I had to own it. It was listed in Latvia of all places. I love when you get that. When you get like, a peek behind the curtain. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to get out of my lane for a little bit here. One thing that I enjoy almost as much as Godzilla is West Ham United football club from East London. And so I am often on eBay looking for West Ham United football kits, what we'd call a Jersey here in the U S there is at least a couple of sellers in the Ukraine. And like, is there a huge demand for, English football shirts in the Ukraine? Evidently, because it's more than one guy, I'm pretty sure. So, hey, you never know where you're going to find stuff on eBay. So, anyway, Adam continues. Shockingly, no one else bid on it. I know I'm shocked. And I won. Now I have the most ridiculous thing one could possibly own, and I love it. I throw it in my mini displayer every once in a while purely for the novelty. Oh, <laughs> I do. When Adam bought the mini displayer, I was... Um, I was a little jealous, I'm not going to lie, because I do remember wanting to go in on Minidisc when it came out, and my dad being like, no, you're not going in on Minidisc, you have tapes and you have CDs. And in retrospect, of course, dad was right, but I still kind of want it, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, Adam finishes up. Anyway, thanks for putting out such an amazing show. Thank you very much, sir. Keep them stomping. Adam Tebow. Adam, first off, thank you very much for writing in. Always glad to hear from you. And yeah, it's it's amazing how many people have such a similar sort of story about Godzilla 98, right? Just the hype for it was everywhere. And, and it's, it's, if you weren't there, it is a little hard to understand because especially coming off of Independence Day, right? Because Independence Day had been similarly just saturated with the marketing. And they were saying, whoa, Devlin and Emmerich, they made this, you know, this big, flashy, fun, you know, alien invasion epic destroyed all these cities, did all this great stuff. They're going to do Godzilla. And everybody was just so psyched and hyped up for it. And the mystery around what, what Amerigoji was going to look like, you know, it, it was, it was a perfect storm of promotion. And unfortunately the product didn't quite live up to the promotion, right? Which is not atypical, but it was, 
it was a, a very it's it's an experience that I think a lot of us uh, G fans around the same age all kind of share, right? And so I, I loved hearing uh, Adam's story about that. And of course, mini disc, you know, I need to get I have Godzilla Final Wars on UMD. I need to get Godzilla on on UMD just cause, just cause, you know, because that's why not? It's fantastic. I mean, I still at, at this between that and my restarting the VHS collection. Uh, which I had the whole series on VHS and then ended up giving a lot of them away. Some of my friends actually still have those VHSs. So if I come asking, you know, you never know. I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm just playing. Uh, but I will uh, be reviewing the VHS at some point. But anyway, thank you very much, Adam, for writing in. Again, if you guys want to get in touch with the show, email me, earthdestructiondirective.com. Love to get email from uh, from the listeners. We still have a few emails here in the uh, inbox. Uh, but, uh, very much, uh, would love to hear from each and every one of you. If you have thoughts about a gamma the brave or Godzilla 98 or anything that we, we covered here on the show. All right. So social media likes shares, I guess they're not called retweets anymore. Now they're called reposts, thumbs up, all that good stuff for the last couple of episodes came from my brother, Mr. Jason Giaconetti. John Vanover, Derek, Derek WC from the Fanholes podcast, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine, Hendrix, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange, purveyor of the Monsters and Magazines podcast, or is it Magazines and Monsters? It's Magazines and Monsters podcast, Brian Sever, Mr. Lomax, the aforementioned Adam Tebow, Tim Elliott, Burma Gaynor, Luciano Viroletti, Crystal Lady Jessica, James Allen Tundry, Nathan Marchand, the curator over at the Monster Island Film Vault, the History of Comics on Film, the Telltale Mind, the Two True Freaks podcast, Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, the Henshin Men podcast, the Power Trip podcast, Sir Martin Gray, and Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Thank you, everyone, for all of that great social media support. I say this every time, and when it's, uh, I will continue saying it until it stops being true. Podcasting is a labor of love, and just putting out, uh, you know, just sharing that post, liking that post, um, you know, reblogging it. Is that still a thing on Pinterest? I don't know. Um, all that stuff really helps get word out for the show, and it is very much appreciated. Thank you, everyone. I really do appreciate that. Also, I'd like to take the time, of course, to say that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone if you want to be part of this show, you are okay to interact with the show in any way that makes you feel comfortable. If you want to just listen, if you want to send email, you want to, you know, chat on Discord, you want to comment on YouTube, whatever you want, that's okay. I'm not here to uh, to gatekeep the fandom. This is a show by a fan for the fans, and, and that's that's all it is to it. All are welcome. So now that we are done with Gamma the Brave, Question, of course, comes up, what's next? Every, that's everything in our culture, right? What's next? What's next? Marvel Comics movies have taught us this movie's okay, but what's next is real important, right? Anyway, so coming up next, we're going to be dipping back into Toho in the Showa era, and we're going to be digging back to their non-Godzilla films, sort of. So we're going to be taking a look at the film Atragon. Now, Atragon is... Uh, sort of a Godzilla movie in that it does feature the monster Manda who would eventually become part of the monster series, uh, excuse me, the Godzilla series. But Atragon itself is a standalone film, science fiction film based on a, a manga. Very much looking forward to covering this. I haven't watched Atragon in at least 10 years. So very much uh, interested in checking that out. So I hope everyone will come back and listen to that episode. All right. Want to wrap the show up here. Thank you everybody 
for listening to the show. Thank you, everybody, for all of your support. Remember, you can check us out on uh, Facebook. Just search for uh, uh, the Two True Freaks group, and you can find our Destruction Directive there. You can also find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find uh, the show on Twitter. Just use the hashtag Earth Destruction Directive. Find the show on YouTube. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. And you can, of course, get on the Two True Freaks Discord and go to your Destruction Directive channel. Just check out the show notes and you can get the link there. All right. That's all I've got, folks. Thank you for listening. Hope you all come back next time for Atragon. And until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. Produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at Ljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin MacLeod. Downloaded from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.